0: So I don't know about you, but my friends started uh, texting and tweeting me and sending me copies of articles from the New York Times and other places about that little incident on Mount Tabor, the reservoir, this week. Did you all get this? My friends mocking me about Portland's water supply. It happened right away. In fact, one whole group of friends decided to have an entire conversation on my Facebook wall. I I wasn't even participating, but they just had a conversation about Portland's water on, on my Facebook wall. Well, because of that little incident, and if you didn't hear about it, and I don't know how you could not have heard about it, uh, you can ask me at the door. Um, <laughs> be, be, because of that little incident, of, of course, uh, everybody's talking about Portland's water. As, as irrational as it may seem, of course, we're, we're, we're dumping all that water. But, but it is stuff like that, right? Right? That, that explains the, the popularity of something that did not exist basically when when I was in high school, back back in or maybe it was just beginning to exist in the eighties. Certainly didn't exist when I was in grade school in the seventies. And that is bottled water, like people paying good money for water that comes in a bottle rather than the water that comes out of the tap or the, the water fountain, which you actually can't find anymore because bottled water is so popular. Can, can you, some of you can remember when no one would have dreamed of paying money for water, especially water in a bottle. Do you know how much we pay now? Just America alone, and we're just 15% of bottled water consumption worldwide, but just America alone... We spend $12 billion a year for about 10 billion bottles, uh, gallons of bottled water. You work that out, that's about 300 times the price of the same amount of water just coming from your tap. Why do we do that? Why do we spend all this money on water in a bottle? I'll tell you why. It's because of that guy up there on Mount Tabor. That's why. That is why we do it. And and advertisers, the people that sell us water, they they get this. They understand our paranoia, right? They, they, They usually put it right there on the label of the bottle. Bottled at the source. Almost all of the water bottles have that. Bottled at the source, where dumb teenagers and drowned rats can't get at it. We want to be sure, as Americans, that the water we're drinking is absolutely pure. And so we know, if it comes to us straight from the source, you know, that mountain spring, that limestone fissure, that then we know we can trust it, and we'll pay good money for that. And why am I talking about water and bottled water? Because this spring, we've been considering authentic Christianity. We've been using the letter of First John. And this Easter Sunday morning, we come to the heart of John's argument, and it goes like this: here's really the, the point that, that John is trying to make throughout this entire letter. He's right at the kind of the climax of the letter, if there was one. and it's this: if God is love, if God is love and, and He is, then authentic Christians will display a love that clearly comes from God. If God is love and He is then real Christians, authentic Christians, will display a love that clearly comes from God. It's like we're those bottles of water and we've got this label on us. If you're a real Christian, you've got this label on you that says straight from the source, bottled at the source. According to John, that source is Jesus Christ. As we consider this morning God's love and our love, I want you to consider what it would mean for your life to, to be like a, like a bottle filled and even overflowing with God's love. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to start reading at verse 7. If you're not used to using a Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided, this is found on page 1902. 1,902, it should be pretty easy to find. First John, chapter 4, and I'm going to read just a few verses, verses 7 to 12. First John 4, verses 7 to 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, for those of you who have been following along since the beginning of 1 John, John is now coming back for a third time to run through this this cycle of marks of genuine Christianity. But this time, he changes the order. And, And for this third time through, he begins with the mark, the test of love. Now, the first time he talked about the test of love, he argued that real Christians love because they've come into the light, because they know the truth about God. And then the second time... He talked about this test of love as the mark of a real Christian. He argued that real Christians love because they've been born again, because the the, the very life of God is alive in us. Now, this third time, he's coming back to it again, he actually brings these two ideas together. And he's arguing that Christians love because the God we know, this light that we've come into, and, and, and the God who gave us life is love and therefore the source of all love. So if I could put these five or six verses into one sentence, and this will kind of form the outline of what I'm going to say. If I could sum it up in one sentence, it would go like this. Christians should love one another. That's first. Christians should love one another because God has loved us in Jesus Christ. That's second. Because God has loved us in Jesus Christ in order that the world might see God. That's the third point, in order that the world might see God. Christians should love one another because God has loved us in Jesus Christ in order that the world might see God. Now, let's unpack that. First, Christians should love one another. Look look again at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. John says that Christians should love one another because love comes from God and because God is love. Now, I think probably even on an Easter Sunday morning, most of us here have heard that idea so many times that it's become almost meaningless. Yes, 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 of course. Of course God is love. What else would he be, right? Yes, 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 of course we should love. Love one another. Who doesn't think that? Doesn't everybody think that? I mean, it doesn't even sound like a particularly Christian idea. The year before I was born, one of the top ten songs in this nation was what the world needs now, is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. Some of you all remember that Burt Bacharach song. Some of us are thankful that he's not singing anymore. But the world likes this idea. The the world likes this idea of love. And it's not, apparently, all that Christian, is it? But we also know that it's really not that easy. It's not as easy as that song makes it seem. The reason that there's too little little love in the world is, is actually us. We're the reason there's too little love in the world. We... Today, we, in, in John's day, when he wrote this letter, and there's, there's too little love because we don't love. And well, why, why don't we love? Well, we don't love because we tend to really only want to love what's lovable, right? We, we love those who we feel like are worthy of our love, or we love those who we feel like have earned our love, or, or we will love those who have some prior claim on our love, like family, you know, in John's day, when he wrote this letter, the, the, his society would have, it, would have considered it actually immoral to love someone who was not worthy of that love. It, w- it was considered good and right to hate people, who, to, to despise and reject people who weren't worthy of your love. Now, we're not going to go that far today, but I think if we're honest, aren't we, it's far easier and far trendier to argue for income equality, to argue for justice for the poor than it is actually to love that pesky family member, than it is actually to love that, that office mate that really gets on your nerves. Here's where the idea becomes distinctly Christian. John says that Christians love one another, Not because we feel affection for one another. Not because we have social solidarity with each other. Not because we're into the same music or share the same ethnicity or at the same age and stage of life. No, Christians love one another because we are connected to the very source of love itself, and that is God. And love comes from God because God is love. What does it mean that God is love? Well, it doesn't mean that love is God, right? That, that's, that's what our culture wants to do. Our culture wants to take that statement, God is love, and turn it around as if it's transitive, right, and say love is God, kind of, kind of, you know, as if every, everything that we might experience as love is, is therefore somehow divine, therefore to be, to be approved of. That's not what John's saying. That's not the case at all. God defines love by his person, by his character. So the statement, God is love, is not like a precious moment statement. It is profound theology. From all eternity, God is love. Because from all eternity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, have been in loving relationship with one another. God didn't start loving when he created us and finally had an object to love. No, God has always experienced in himself true and pure and absolute love in the relationship of the Trinity itself. And and therefore, love is not simply one of the things that God does. Right, you know, sometimes he loves and sometimes he judges and sometimes he creates and sometimes he speaks. No, no, love isn't one of the things God does. Love is the way he does everything that he does. So when he speaks, he speaks lovingly. When he judges, he judges lovingly, whatever he does, he does in love. And what that means, among other things, is that if we're going to understand God's love, we cannot look at our love. We cannot look at our human affections, our emotions, our desires, and and know what God's love looks like. Because he's not like us. As John's going to point out in just a few verses, if we're going to understand what God's love looks like, we're going to have to look at Jesus Christ. But before John gets there, he wants us to see that if we're Christians, if we're connected to God, if we know him and have been born of him, God's love is going to overflow in and through us. This is where the mystics got it wrong. Back in the Middle Ages, the mystics tried to think of God and God's love as kind of maybe this vast, infinite ocean. And they just wanted to kind of drown themselves in it, lose themselves in God's love. Wrong image. God's love is not like this this still, vast, bottomless, infinite pool. God's love is like a fountain, constantly bubbling up, constantly overflowing, constantly moving. And if we know God, then we will not be able to help but love one another because his love pours into us and it pours Through us. It's not that Christians are particularly loving people. I don't know how many Christians you know. I've spent my whole life around them. I know a lot of them. And I'll just affirm right now for you, they're not more loving naturally than anybody else. They might be less so. It's not that we're particularly loving. It's that we are connected to a loving God. (laughs) Like, like, Like a light bulb that's connected to a source of power, it can't help but glow, right? Like a faucet that's connected to a water main, it can't help but pour forth water. For Christians, it's not just our duty to love, though it, though it is. For, for Christians, this is, this is what happens. When a human being created in the image of God comes to know God, is born again of God, is connected to God and has his life in him, this is what happens. Love flows through that human being because God is love. There's just, there's, there are no exceptions. There, there's no way around it. Which means, and, and John says this really clearly here, which means that a loveless Christian is an oxymoron. As John says in verse 8, that, that person doesn't know God at all. That person isn't a Christian at all, no matter what he claims. John Stott said a loveless Christian is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we don't speak or to have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. So friend if you if you're here this morning and you, and you've always thought of yourself as a Christian, you think of yourself as a Christian right now but but honestly you don't have time for Christians. You you don't have time for Jesus, you don't have time for Christianity. If you don't have time for Christians maybe other than those that are in your family or your closest friends, then John is confronting you here this morning. He's he's saying to you, you may know a lot about God, but you don't really know God. Because God is love. And those who have been born of Him, and love just overflows from their lives. If that... If that describes you, somebody who you you always thought you were a Christian, but you look at your life and you don't see a whole lot of love there, particularly you don't see a lot of love for people you have no reason to love other than the fact that you've got Christ in common, well, friend, today's the day to change that. Today's the day to move from being a Christian in name only to actually really being a Christian. Do not let pride get in the way. Do not let embarrassment get in the way. Do not let what your parents might think get in the way of actually coming to know God today. No matter how long you've been a member of a church, no matter how long you have thought of yourself as a Christian. Now, if you are a Christian, John understands that Christians need encouragement to love. He, he, he says, let us love one another. So, th- so this should happen. It should be characteristic of it, but he gets it that for those of us that are genuine Christians, we're genuinely born, born again, man, stuff gets in the way, doesn't it? What stops you as a believer, as a, as, a, as a real Christian, a genuine Christian, what stops you from loving one another? Just look at your own life for a minute. Is it, is it self love? Is, is there a big part of your life that's devoted to taking care of yourself? Yes, you know you're supposed to love others, but you, you got you to love self first. You got to take care of yourself first. You, you understand, don't you, that self-love is a jealous lover. It doesn't want you to love anyone else. And so self-love, as we coddle it, as we indulge it, it increasingly crowds out our ability to love. Maybe it's not self love. Maybe it's busyness. Maybe it's busyness that distracts you. It's not that you're not a loving person, you are a loving person. It's just you don't have time. There are so many demands on you, there's so much going on that you've got to give yourself to. Maybe it's fear. Uh, I, I know, I think this is the one that affects me the most as a Christian as someone who knows that the love of God should be pouring through me, what keeps me from loving others, it's fear. Fear that my love is going to be rejected. Fear that my love, as I express it, is is going to be, you know, not good enough. And so it paralyzes me. I, I, I don't know your life. I don't know the shape of your life. I don't know what particularly keeps you as a believer in Jesus Christ from loving others, But whatever it is, we need to understand that those things stop us from loving others because they basically convince us that the source of our love is us. You know, uh, I'm really busy. If I just had more time, I'd be able to love. You understand the logic there. The logic is I can only do so much. I'm finite. There's only so much love to go around. The reality is, as believers, as we immerse ourselves in God's love for us, as as the Holy Spirit leads us to to repent of self-love and to rest more and more in God's love for me, well, then, then I begin to realize that love is not a finite commodity that I have to parcel out sparingly lest I run out. But no, it's a, it's a never-ending stream because it didn't start with me. Its source isn't in me, and it never runs dry because the source is the inexhaustible fountain of God's love. Christians love one another, not because it's easy, not because they have a lot of time, not because everybody around them is, is, is really lovable, Christians love one another because God is love. And that love cannot be stopped. I I think our experience should be a bit like parents. You know, when I when I got married to Adrian, I was and still am so in love with her. And it took us a while to have kids. And I began to wonder how how does this work? I mean, I love Adrian so much. How is there, like, love for whatever child's going to come? Like, do I divide it? D- does she get 80 and the kid gets 20? I mean, seriously, I mean, how, how does this work? Because I've never experienced this before. And, and Michael Jr. comes along, and, and what I realized is, oh, there's no division. It just got bigger. It just got bigger. And, and, then, and then Christian came along. And I didn't have to take anything of my love away from Michael to have love for a Christian because it just got bigger. The pie just kept getting bigger. The slices didn't get cut smaller. I think that experience that we have as parents is exactly the kind of experience we should be having as Christians as we love one another. The source is inexhaustible because the source is God. It's not about finding enough time. It's about understanding that the pie just gets bigger and bigger and bigger because we'll never, never exhaust God's love. Christians should love one another, which leads us second. They should love one another because God has loved us in Jesus Christ. God has loved us in Jesus Christ. Look at verse nine. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John's already said that God is love. Now he explains what that means. He says that verse 9, God has shown, literally God has revealed his love by sending his one and only son into the world. And what that love looks like is, verse 10, the son's atoning sacrifice for our sins on the cross. So who is God's one and only son? Well, he is the second person of the Trinity, fully God, the eternal son of God, one with the father, God in every way that the father is God. But when the father sent the son, God actually became man in the person of Jesus Christ. God incarnate. The witness of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ, the historical person who is both fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ reveals God's love because Jesus is God. Remember how I said we couldn't look at ourselves and figure out what God's love looks like? No, God's going to have to show us what God's love looks like because we're not like God. How did God do that? He sent his son. Jesus shows us the father. Jesus shows us what God's love looks like. But of course, the most amazing kind of mind-blowing statement or thing about the statement that John says here is not that God took on human flesh and became a man. If he's God, he can do whatever he wants, right? Right? posit the idea of God, and as soon as you've got that, well, God can kind of do what he wants. So the amazing thing is not that God actually became a man. We would expect no less of God. If he can't do something like that, then he's probably not God. No, what's, what's amazing is that the holy God would send his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to bring life to us. And to bring life to us by giving his life for us. Friends, this is the central message of Christianity. That that the son was sent into the world that we might live through him. This is the good news that we celebrate on Easter Sunday. When John talks about the world, understand he means humanity in its opposition to God. He doesn't just mean the created order. No, he means sending his son to the people that hate him. God didn't send Jesus to his friends. God God didn't send Jesus to to people who already loved him and loved God. No, God sent Jesus to us, to people who are in utter rebellion against him, who would prefer God be dead so that we would be free to live whatever way we want to live. That's who God sent Jesus to. And And he didn't, here's what's amazing, he didn't send him to condemn us. So that is what we deserve. Now we sent him to die for us. When John calls Jesus' death on the cross an atoning sacrifice, what, what, what he means there is that on the cross, Jesus Christ took our place. He was on that cross, not for anything that he had done, he was on that cross as a substitute for us, dying the death that we deserve. And you must understand this if you're going to understand Christianity. We are dead in our sins. We are as good as dead under God's judgment. We are even now physically dying under the sentence of death, and we are already spiritually dead, unable to love God, unable to to find intimacy with God on our own, on our own terms, by our own power. Friends, this is the death that Jesus died. He didn't just die on the cross, a physical death. No, he suffered the spiritual pain penalty of death that we are under, separation from God and judgment. And that death wasn't just an example. It, it, wasn't just, it wasn't just an example of how bad we are and how corrupt human, the human race is. It wasn't just an example of, 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 of how terrible sin is. No, his death accomplished something. Christ's death on the cross actually satisfied God's just judgment. It appeased His judicial wrath. Because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you are trusting in Him, then then here's the good news. God, who made you, who has every right to hold you accountable for how you've lived your life, who would be right to judge you for rejecting him who's done nothing but love you, that God is not angry at you anymore. And it's because of Jesus' death. God is not angry at you anymore if you are in Jesus Christ. And the reason that we know that God is not angry at his people anymore is because three days later, after that death on the cross, Jesus got up from the dead. That, that, that tomb that they laid him in is empty. Jesus Christ is alive. That's why we're here this morning. He's not just alive in our hearts. As if, as if religious sentiment alone would, would matter, is, is worth even a hill of beans, no, it's, it's not that, 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 that the apostles thought he was alive, so overcome were they with, with the love of God, but they were, really, they were really fooled. You understand that the authorities of the day hated Christians, hated Christianity, hated what was going on. If Jesus was still in the tomb, it would have been very easy to produce his body and just kill the whole thing right then and there. But the body was never produced. Some people want to say, well, the disciples stole it. And hid it. Friends, that's preposterous. And you must understand it's preposterous. For one thing, it was guarded by, by Roman guards. What are, what are a few Galilean fishermen going to do against Roman guards? For another thing, if they really had stolen the body and hid it, and then tried to foist kind of this religious hoax on the world, why would they all die for it? Why would all of them die for it? Wouldn't you expect at least one of them towards the end of his life, maybe under imprisonment or torture, wouldn't you expect one of them to crack? No, friends, all the evidence points to the fact that Jesus is alive. He walked out of the tomb, and he walked out of the tomb because death could not hold him. He had done what the Father had sent him to do. He had paid the penalty for our sins, and that penalty had been accepted. And so there was no more reason for him to lay there in the grave. Instead, he was resurrected from the dead with resurrection life, with real life, with with God's life, a life that conquers death itself. And now he has ascended to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father ready to give life, His life, resurrection life, to anyone who believes. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you used to believe. It doesn't matter what you've done to anyone who puts their faith in this living Savior. Now, now what does it mean then that He gives us life? What does it mean to live through Jesus? Well, sometimes, and, and I grew up in church, sometimes, honestly, eternal life didn't sound that good. Because all I could imagine was like this life going on forever. And that didn't actually sound so good. And then, of course, sometimes it sounded like I was going to be in choir all the time. And that didn't sound so good. That's not what the Bible means by eternal life. When the Bible talks about eternal life, when the Bible talks about us being given the life of Christ and now living the resurrection life that Christ has, it's not just talking about a life that will not end. It's not talking about length of life, though it's true, it's eternal, it does not end. No, it's talking about a different quality of life, a whole different kind of life. When Jesus got up from the dead, he didn't like just go back to the old kind of life he was living. No, he now walked into the life that knows nothing of death, that knows nothing of sorrow, that knows nothing of sin, because death and sin and sorrow have been conquered, A completely different quality of life. A life, friends, that's a life of love. the life of heaven itself because heaven is a world of love. This is what Jesus entered into and this is what Jesus gives us. A life that has its source in God. Divine life. A life that's no longer in bondage to sin and decay and death. A life that's free. A life that's free to love, a life that is free to live, a life that is free to become all that God intends us to be as human beings created in his image. And friends, it will take all eternity to figure out what that means and what that looks like. If it were any shorter, we wouldn't get to the end of what it means to be made alive in Jesus Christ. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what we're inviting you to today. We're not inviting you to religion. We're not inviting you to rules. We're not inviting you to culture wars and politics. We're inviting you to life. Life as God always meant it to be. This is what we're celebrating today. This is what we're about to celebrate in baptisms at the end of the service. We're going to see two people baptized. They're going to go down into the water as if they're being buried, and they're going to be brought up, as if they're being resurrected into a new life. That baptism that you're going to to witness is a picture, just a picture of what we think Jesus Christ does for us starting today. And we'd love to invite you into that. Talk to me at the door. Talk to the family member or friend that brought you. But don't go away without exploring what it might mean to Enter into life today. Now, it may be that you're really attracted to Jesus. It may be that you like his way of life and that you want that that ethic, that way of life for yourself. Friend, you cannot have it. You cannot have his way of life without having him. Jesus did not come to condemn us, but he also didn't come merely to be our guide and teacher. Jesus came to be our Savior. He came to lavish his love upon us. He came to make us alive and to fill us with his love. And that only happens when you put your faith in him as God and as Lord and as Savior. As you confess him to be the Savior that you need and you begin to follow him as the Lord that made you and has a right claim on your life. Christian, this is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. John holds this up. What, what Jesus did for us is the very definition of love. We cannot meditate on that enough. I, I, I want you, I want you to just to notice very quickly three things about this love that I'm sure you as a Christian do not think about enough about God's love for you in Jesus Christ. First, did you notice God's love initiates? How do you know when somebody loves you? You know because they move towards you, right? They, 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 they initiate. They begin to go out of their way to show you how much they love you. They take risks. They make plans. They go to all sorts of efforts to show you that they love you. Friends, this is God's love for us. Before the foundation of the world, he made a plan. And then at just the right time, he took the initiative and he sent his son to love us. God is not like that, that middle school lover boy that you were at one point in time. When there was this girl that you liked or girl, there was this boy that you liked and, and you, you kind of wanted to, to let them know that, that you really liked them, but there was no way you were gonna let them know that, that you liked them until you would kind of work through all their friends to find out that they first liked you. Yeah, that's not God. That's not God. God initiates. He actually knows you don't like him. He knows you don't love him. And he's moving towards you. He takes the initiative. God's love not only initiates, God's love overcomes. This is what love does. Love overcomes objections. Love overcomes indifference. Love woos and wins. It's not dissuaded by obstacles. I mean, I remember when I was pursuing Adrian. Right? I had a lot of obstacles to overcome. She was dating my best friend. (laughs) Obstacle number one. And that was the easy one. Then she actually got to know me, and there were more obstacles that had to be (laughs) overcome. Right? But this is what love does love is not dissuaded by obstacles, it pursues, it wins, it woos. This is God's love for us. He overcomes obstacles. For us, and they're far worse than the obstacles I had to overcome. He overcomes the obstacle of his own wrath towards us that we deserve. And he overcomes the obstacle of our sin and our unloveliness. And he patiently and persistently woos and wins our hearts. Christian, this is God's love for you. But not only does he initiate and does he overcome, God's love Gives. You understand? This is this is this is what love wants. Love love is not in it for itself. Love, love is not there to see what it can get. No, love gives. Love gives itself. It wants to bless. It wants to delight. It wants to lavish all that it has on the beloved. I again. I mean, this is what I did when when I was about to ask Adrian to marry me. I took every penny that I owned, like. A decade of mowing people's lawns that I had saved up. And then then a few restaurant jobs here and there that I had saved up. And I don't know what I was saving it for. But when I met her, I knew what it was for. And I wanted to give it all to her. I wanted to put it... now, Now, guys, don't be stupid, right? So I'm not saying go into debt to buy an engagement ring. I saw some of those looks out there. No, but I wanted to take what I had and I wanted to put it in the most beautiful ring I could find and I wanted to put it on her finger because I loved her and I wanted her to delight in that and I wanted everybody to know that I delighted in her. And friends, this is like God's love for us. He takes all that he has. He takes the best that he has. He takes his son and he gives his son for us. And then in giving us his son, what has he done? He's given us life And in giving us life, what has he done? He's given us himself. Because that's what life is. Life comes from God. And God has given us life in Jesus Christ. Christian, do you understand this? Do you think about this enough? I'm sure you don't think about this enough. What makes you a Christian is not how well and how hard you've loved God. Now, what makes you a Christian is how lavishly and how incredibly God has loved you in Jesus Christ. So Christian, rest in that love. Delight in it. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to deserve it because love cannot be deserved. It can only be received. But then watch out because when love is received, it changes us. It changes everything, which leads us to John's last point. Christians should love one another because God has loved us in Christ in order that the world might see God. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Why would God love us so lavishly as to give us Jesus Christ? Right? Why why would God love you? Why would God love me that way? Well, quite simply, according to John here, so that the love would not stop. God is love. God is invisible. God, God is spirit. As John says, no one's ever seen God. But when we who have God's love love one another, then you know what happens? What happens is that the invisible God becomes visible as he and his love is seen among us, among Christians. What's more, John says here that this was the point of it all along. God's plan was to make his love complete in us. Literally, his plan was to bring his love to its designed, to its purposed end It's point in us. What's the end of God's love? What's the point of God's love? Well, what's the point of a fountain? The whole point is that it would constantly overflow. The whole point is that it would constantly bubble up and bring delight to all who receive it. Friends, this is the end of God's love. The end of God's love is not only that God would be seen through his people to be a God of love in some sort of abstract, sterile, theoretical way. No, the whole point of God's love is that his love would overflow through us so that more and more and more and more and more more would experience that love and delight in that love and know that God is a God who is love because of Jesus Christ. Friends, there are so many reasons not to love each other. I don't think I need to list them this morning. If I gave you a moment, you'd be able to think of 10 real quick. 10 reasons not to love the person next to you, right? It's not hard. The fact is, God has even more reasons and even better reasons not to love us. But he did. He did love us. And so Henson Baptist Church, we are those people who are filled with that love. So as I prayed earlier, let's be a resurrection church. Let's be a church that displays for all the world to see that Jesus is alive. and, And we know that, not because you can see his body, but because you can see his body. right? Not because you can hear his words of love, but because you hear his words of love all around you. Because his love is evident among us. Let's love one another. Let's love one another practically. Let's be inconvenienced in order to love one another. I assure you, we will not be more inconvenienced than the incarnation itself, right? Let's let's love one another personally. We don't pay staff to do the loving here at church, right? That's not just the the elders and deacons' job. No, it's, it's, it's all of us. So let's love personally. Let's love sacrificially. Let's give ourselves away because we cannot outgive God. Let's love constantly. Let's love the way that God loved us. Let's, Let's enter into one another's lives. Let's take the initiative. Let us not tire of overcoming obstacles and giving ourselves away for the good and delight of each other. Because, you know, people all around the world today, people maybe even here in Portland, maybe even people in this room are saying, if only I had seen the resurrection, if only I had seen Jesus, you know, then I could believe. We want to be the people who say in response to that, we totally understand and we've got good news for you. You can see Jesus. You can see it right here, right here in this local church. Look at his love. A solo Christian cannot show anybody the love of God. It takes two or three. It takes a local church with all of its imperfections, with all of its idiosyncrasies, with all of its problems. Friend, if you want to know God, if you want to experience God's love, then we want to say to you, you don't need to look any further because Jesus got up from the dead and so his love is overflowing towards sinners right here. You see, we're just a a bottling plant, as it were. And you can be sure that the love that you find here is straight from the source. Don't settle for anything less. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to know your love and to understand it. We pray that you give us eyes to see Jesus. We we, we pray that that we would know what it means to be alive in him. We we ask that, that that love Jesus showed and continues to pour out would be evident in this church. We pray it would be evident in our lives. We pray that you would bring more people, even today, into that love. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. We're going to get to see a picture of this new life, of this resurrection life in the baptism baptisms that we're about to, uh, to have. So if I could invite uh, our two folks that are getting baptized to come up and join me here on the platform, uh, Madeline and, and Nico. Great. You guys come on up. Before Jesus left and ascended to go to heaven, he, he, he told his followers uh, that all authority had been given to him and that we were to go in and make disciples. And the way we were to make disciples was we were to teach them to obey everything that he had commanded. We were to baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we know that that is precisely what his followers did. They went throughout the Greco-Roman world telling people about the good news of Jesus and baptizing them into the name of Jesus as a public display of their, uh, their new life in Christ. And uh, so we know we're so confident that that happened uh, that actually we know that, that Paul... Uh, when he would write to a group of, of Christians, a, a church that he had never even been to, that never, never even visited, he, he would write to them in a way that he assumed that all of them had been baptized. Uh, so we are going to continue following the Lord's command uh, in, in baptism today. And I want to introduce to you Madeline DeBoer and Nico Ranta. Why don't you guys stand over here on this side of me? And I'm going to give you this microphone. Now, and. Just kind of hold it between you. There you go. Uh, We're going to hear their testimonies, but first I want to put two questions to them that we put to all who come to be baptized here, and I'm going to put these questions to them, and they're going to answer for all of us. So first, uh, Nico and Madeline, do you make profession of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. And do you promise by God's grace to follow him forever in the fellowship of his church?
1: I do. I do.
0: Great. What I want to do now is invite Madeline... To come and tell us how is it? do not you keep that microphone? How is it that you come to be baptized today?
2: Like so many others, I was born and have been raised in a Christian household with a Christian family. And like so many others, I remember praying a prayer in my room and accepting Jesus into my heart. Um, but To be perfectly honest, I don't know if that was the exact moment in my life when I became a Christian or not. Throughout my life, however, uh, God has been working in and through me, and I can now look back and see just a small portion of his magnificent plans unfolding in my life. Today I'm being baptized in front of you, my witnesses, as the Bible commands Christians to do, that people may know what I believe and whom I believe in. We are told in God's word that baptism symbolizes our union with Christ and our incorporation into his family. We die with Christ to the power of sin and are raised with him, no longer under God's wrath, but under his merciful love. We are born again as new creations, free from sin and death. I believe these things to be true, and for these reasons, I can stand before you and profess to you the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent to the earth and became fully to become fully man and fully God, that he lived the perfect life and died the perfect death that we should have lived, or lived the perfect life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, so that we as sinners may now come to God, confess our sins to him, and find a new relationship with him. God has been revealing the gospel to be the one and only truth in my life. Like all of you, I struggle with sin. I'm not perfect. I struggle with stress. I struggle with the daily distractions of life. As a freshman at Oregon State University, I struggle with what I'm going to do and who I'm going to be. I struggle with forgetfulness and self-preoccupation and pride. I idolize good things, God-given things, pursuing my dreams, loving my family, seeking personal comfort and striving to better myself. I want to hold on to my future so tightly that I choose to follow my flawed ambitions instead of yielding to God's purpose and plan for my life. The good news of the gospel is, in Christ, all that I was has been wiped away. Standing in the shadow of the cross and wrapped in Christ's blood shed for me, I now stand perfect and blameless before God. It is because of this that I can turn to him in times of stress It is because of this that I can surrender my future to him. My advice to you is this. The gospel, this truth, is not merely the threshold of Christian life. It should be the very foundation we walk on. It should be the very air we breathe. Never get past the gospel. Never get past the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today we are here to celebrate Easter, the day we remember not only the incredible sacrifice Christ made for us, but also the fact that Christ did not stay dead. Christ, by going to the cross, conquered sin and death and rose from the grave, all for our sakes, for the salvation of our lives and our very souls. As it says in Hebrews, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Christ promised to conquer sin. He was faithful in that, and we know so, because he got up from the dead and is reigning with his Father in heaven. Who are we to not repent of our sins and put the entirety of our lives into following and trusting him? This is the man I want to entrust my future to. And I pray that all of you will join me by doing the same. Christ is risen. Praise God. Thank you.
0: Amen. Thanks, Madeline. You can go ahead. Next is Nika Ranta. Nika, tell us, uh, make sure you tell us what you're doing. Like, here, like, what are you up to? And then uh, why you are coming to be baptized today? Okay.
1: So, I grew up in a Christian family, also. Um, I came to know God when I was a young boy. I don't remember life before I knew and believed in Jesus. Even though I've been a believer, there were seasons when I was not very active in my faith. This was all through middle school, high school, and even college. I never doubted, but sadly, I, I was not going anywhere with my relationship with Jesus. The big change that occurred in my life took place this past summer. I came back to Portland after spending four months in Walla Walla, Washington, having spent the time there working as a computer repair tech. At the same time as me coming home, a friend from high school, Amy, was coming back from time spent in California and prior to that, Lebanon. This, this friend is a strong believer, and we spent many nights deeply engaged in talking about our beliefs and theology. My friend introduced me to other believers my age. This started by playing games. And I eventually started attending the college group events. I was reluctant at first. I don't always interact well with others and tend to shy away from meeting new people. But God had plans for this. And I had previously very little interaction with fellow believers, and that changed how I well, that group changed how I view my faith and those around me. I came to a deeper understanding of God's love for me and Jesus Christ and how that should impact all of my life. Ever since the summer, I have learned a lot about myself and prayed about the direction that God wants to me to take in my life. I am now pursuing an actual career, um, as I previously spent time just bouncing back between jobs. Um, I'm now pursuing, actually, GIS. If you want to know about that, just ask later. I'm not going to try to explain it now. <laughs> uh, and in leading me, I've come to realize that baptism is something that I need to do. So in obedience to him as my Lord and Savior... I've, this come, I've come this morning to make a public profession of my faith through baptism.
0: Amen. Thank you, Nico. <clears throat> back and get Let me lead us in prayer briefly for, for these two, and then I'm going to go back and get ready, and you all are going to sing In Christ Alone. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the testimony, the profession of faith that both Nico and Madeline have given this morning. We pray that you would now use this baptism as an encouragement to them, confirming to them their own faith, that you would hold and keep them close. They would continue to walk with you all the days of their lives. And we pray for us as a congregation, that as we witness their baptism, that we would seek to improve our own baptisms, that we would use this even now as an opportunity to reaffirm our own professions of faith. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, move in, in those of us here today that do not know you to come to know you, to be born of you, and so to profess faith in you as well. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.